Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Maltrop, CEO here at the City Club and a proud member. Today's June 15th, you're with a virtual City Club forum. In May, the U.S. Census Bureau announced population statistics following the completion of the 2020 census. As it has every decade for the last 50 years, Ohio will lose yet one more seat in Congress, decreasing the number of representatives this time around from 16 to 15. While Ohio actually gained population since the 2010 census, other areas of the country, especially the Sun Belt and the West, grew much faster. The timing of this is significant. Three years ago, Ohio voters overwhelmingly approved issue one. That's a plan to more fairly redraw the state's congressional districts, which are considered among the most gerrymandered in the nation. The new system of drawing congressional maps is supposed to begin this year. So what exactly is supposed to happen now? And how are legislators preparing for these changes? What are the implications for Northeast Ohio and Cuyahoga County? And further, how do we ensure that the redistricting reforms that were passed are actually implemented fairly? Also, how does Ohio's experience with gerrymandering and attempt at reform fit into the broader picture that we see across the nation? Leading our conversation today is Karen Kassler. She is the Bureau Chief at Ohio Public Radio Statehouse News Bureau, and Karen will introduce our panel. Karen? This map right back here is a map that was given to me by uh, State Representative Mike Curtin, a Democrat of Columbus who retired a couple of years ago, who was a fierce advocate for redistricting reform when he was here. And, and this was the map, the map that is on the graphic uh, on the Cleveland's forum site that you see uh, today. And so I just wanted to keep that up throughout this conversation so we know what we're talking about here. So let me introduce the panelists and who will all be unmuted, I'm sure, by the time they start talking. First of all, Dave Daly, he is Senior Fellow at Fair Vote and author of Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. We have Jen Miller, Executive Director of the League of Voters of Ohio, and Alora Thomas-Lundberg, Senior staff attorney with the Voting Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. So I'll invite you all to unmute here while I go over a couple of instructions for people who are listening. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. It's right there on the screen. 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. So at the City Club, and we'll try to work them in. But that's a tradition here that we always bring in audience questions. So I want to start before we go to that with some basics of the big changes here. There, are, This is the first time that the maps for both Congress and also the State House and Senate will be redrawn using a new process, one that was approved in 2015, one that was approved in 2018 by voters. But it's complicated. Both of them are complicated. So I want to start with maybe Alora here. If you can give kind of a thumbnail sketch of what are the key elements of these differences and the changes, what do these two plans do, and, and what are the key dates here that we need to keep in mind? Sure. And happy to give a stab at that. And then I'm sure that Jen and David will come in and tell me where I got it wrong. So as we've said, there are two processes, and I'll start with the General Assembly process, the process for drawing the General Assembly map first. That process is the first process, which is why we should start with it. It's also, it's both, it was also the one that was passed first. So the General Assembly process was passed in 2015, but this will be the first time it'll be used. And it sets up a commission process for drawing Ohio's maps. There are seven commission members, the governor, the auditor, the secretary of state, 
and then four members that are considered political coming out of the General Assembly itself. Um, each party in each house gets to select a representative to go into the commission. The commission is supposed to debut its first plan by September 1st, which means right now we're going to be in a very tight timeline because the first set of census data is not coming out until August 16th. Before the commission can adopt a plan by September 1st, it's supposed to have three hearings. And in order to adopt a plan in what is considered the first round, the commission would have to have two of um, two members from each party vote for a map. If two members from each party votes for a map, then they can have a 10-year map. If by September 1st, they can't reach that kind of consensus on the commission, then there is a 15-day period in which there is additional, there's a hearing and the commission tries to reach that kind of consensus. If they can't reach the consensus that would have in this instance, two Dems on board, then they can pass a map by majority support, a four-year map. So that's the General Assembly process. So our first date we're thinking about is September 1st, and the second date is September 15th. And in theory, by September 15th, the whole process should be wrapped up. And then we move on to the process for Congress. That process is slightly different, but not less complicated. Um, for that process, you start first in the General Assembly itself. By September 30th, the General Assembly is supposed to pass a map with three-fifths of the General Assembly, including half of the opposition party. So in this case, half of the Democrats would have to vote for a map. If they can do that, then you get a 10-year map. If they can't do that, then it goes to the commission to see if they can reach the kind of quorum where they would get the two Dems on board. And they would have until October 30th to do that. If they can't do that, then it goes back to the General Assembly. Um, the General Assembly would first try to pass a map with, again, three-fifths of the vote. But this time, only a third of the Democrats would have to vote for a map. In that case, they would get a 10-year map. If that process does not work, then the General Assembly could pass a map with majority support, a four-year map by November 30th. So it's quite a complicated process. Within, there, within each amendment, there are limitations on the kind of county splits and splits of jurisdictions you can have. There are requirements about keeping districts contiguous, meaning you can't have another district cut into a district and then ha and um, break kind of a contiguous line. You have to keep the districts compact, which means they generally can't be these kind of large sprawling districts. And if folks are interested in that, I can talk a little bit more about compactness. <laughs> and then um, there are limitations on the maps can't be too partisan, but we'll be figuring out what that means this time around. And each amendment has some language about limitations on partisanship in the maps. 
yeah, there's a lot there and a lot to get done in a fairly short period of time. But I think for most people, and when you you know look at that map and you think about the snake on the lake and the weird duck that's uh, the district that Jim Jordan is in and, and some of these other districts, I think for a lot of people, the real question is going from 16 members of Congress down to 15 and, and what's going to happen with that. So, you know, are we going to still have 12 Republicans and four Democrats in Ohio's congressional delegation now? Who loses? Who loses a seat? Where do you draw that? And so I want to throw this out to Jen and David to jump in. Are we going to go to uh, a 12-3 map? Are we going to go to an 11-4 map? Are we are we going to go even further down the road to um, more uh, more partisanship here with these new maps? Go ahead, uh, Jen and David. Well, I'll start. I mean, I certainly hope that we don't see a 12-3 map. And the reason is because that's not proportional to uh, the vote share uh, for Ohio. So in general, I think we all know that Ohio leans slightly more Republican, maybe 54%. Um, but for the last decade has had 75% of those congressional seats. That's because of gerrymandering. Those map makers set out to um, cement in a firm partisan majority, and that it performed perfectly. Um, it didn't matter whether it was a year that Obama won Ohio or Trump won Ohio, we saw this 12-4 map. We didn't see any change. My hope would be that the new congressional map is, is closer to a 50-50 split, slightly more Republican than Democrat would not be surprising. Um, and my also hope is that as voter preferences and actions change across the decade, that we see some seats changing hands. And then we know that we have a far more fair and responsive map than we've had. I think that's right. Um, first, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here with Jen, uh, the, the League um, and Common Cause and, and groups in Ohio that have worked so hard on this issue for so long have really made change on behalf of voters um, and the work Alora has uh, done on, um, on litigating partisan gerrymanders is just magnificent. Um, so the hope here would certainly be that Ohio gets a fair and responsive map uh, for this next decade. Um, as, as Jen was talking about over the course of the last decade, you had a map that did not budge. Um, it, it, it produced the exact same 12-4 partisan breakdown for uh, five straight elections. And as we know, um, Ohio is not a 75-25 state. Maybe it's a 54-46 state, right? Um, and you have had um, you know, similar issues in the state legislature. Where gerrymandering really becomes such a, a problem um, is when you eliminate competitive districts, uh, you make it so that the only election that matters is in the, the party primary, you force politics to the extremes at all ends, um, and then policymaking really becomes uh, separated from the, the public will at the same time that lawmakers are really insulated from the ballot box. Um, and that is a recipe for a real crisis um, in a representative democracy. What are you likely to see in Ohio? Um, I think Jen is right on this. Um, there is certainly the chance that Republicans could look to draw a 12-3 map. Uh, they could try and draw you know, Democratic districts around Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland, and, and, and try and manipulate the rest of, of 
of the state to um, you know, a 12 other solid or relatively safe Republican seats. Um, I think a fair map probably looks something more like a, a, a nine, six map. Um, I don't think you're going to get anywhere close to that in reality. What we have seen around the country over the course of the last decade and what we hear from politicians as this redistricting cycle heats up again is that they are going to go for essentially whatever they think they can get away with on, on both sides. Uh, Democrats in Illinois and New York are, are talking this way as are Republicans who control the, the process um, in, in many of the same states that they've controlled the process for the last couple of cycles. Um, we're not going to have the US Supreme Court any longer uh, or the federal courts. Uh, they slammed the, the door on partisan gerrymandering cases as, as a non-justiciable political issue back in the Rucho versus Common Cause case in 2019. Um, so it's going to really be left up to uh, politicians to sort of work within these new guardrails of the 2015 and the 2018 amendments. Um, and what we've seen again around the country is that politicians work those guardrails as aggressively as they can. And so the league and the ACLU and all of us in the media are going to have to be, um, you know, super attuned to this process and, and very, very watchful as it goes on. And it's important to mention, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about Ohio going for Trump in 2016 and 2020. But Jen's right. I mean, it is only 53-45, that split. Now, Biden only won seven counties, but those seven counties represent 2.7 million voters in Ohio. So, you know, there this idea that Ohio is totally one way or the other is not really the case when you look at the actual numbers here. And that brings me to a question for Alora here. On the ACLU Ohio's website, outlining four things that you should know about the new maps is this point. To think that the new redistricting process will inherently leave fairer, more representative maps would be a mistake. Now that's kind of depressing. There were 1.2 million Ohioans who voted for changes to the congressional map drawing process, 2.1 million people who voted for changes to the legislative map drawing process. And this suggests that maybe we won't get, we're not guaranteed any changes at all, really. Well, I think the question of whether you're guaranteed a change or, or not is an open one and it's one that we're watching. I think as David said, you can still manipulate the guardrails into such an extent that you get a partisan map. And the process certainly envisions the possibility of, of ending up with a partisan map because both at the General Assembly process and um, in the process for a US Congress, you can pass a four-year map. So you can pass a map that everyone agrees only one party supports and if only one party is supporting a map, you have to ask yourself why. And what we found through our litigation was the reason why is because the map was seriously gerrymandered. And there's still really sophisticated ways in which you can take election results and then use that information to draw a map where you can guarantee an outcome. And to kind of go back to something that both Jen and David said, we do know in Ohio, there's the possibility of drawing fairer maps. What we were able to do during our litigation is in fact, give the court several options of here are maps that could be drawn. And in fact, we use the 2018 um, 
amendment process and all the kinds of restrictions on how you draw maps to say, here, we've done what you should be doing to draw a map in Ohio, and we're able to get X number of competitive seats. And that's what the voters want. They want a contest where at least the possibility of a win on either side is not predetermined and it's not electors picking their voters, but voters really picking their electors. And unfortunately, there's still room for abuse in the process. And that's just something we'll all, we all are going to have to be watching. I think it's really instructive Whenever, here to look at what happened. Oh, I'm sorry. I think it's really instructive here to look at what happened in Pennsylvania in, in 2018 after uh, the uh, state Supreme Court there overturned the congressional map that had been a reliable 13-5 re Republican map. Uh, they said that it violated the free and fair election clause in the state constitution. Um, they sent the map back to the legislature to redraw. And the legislature came back with a map that uh, split a fewer counties, kept more towns together, lacked the crazy shapes and districts of the previous map. Um, and the governor didn't quite trust the legislature. So he, he brought in... Um, a professor named Moon Duchin at Tufts University who runs really sophisticated um, uh, computer programs that draws sample maps that can test all of the different possibilities uh, that a map might look like. Um, and she ran millions of potential sample maps there um, and found that the previous map was the most biased one that you could almost possibly come up with. The new map, was second most biased. So even though it looked better, it held more things together, uh, it still had the same predictable partisan results. Um, so that's the kind of thing you have to be looking out for. I think when people, whenever I put this out on Twitter or start talking about this, there are people who have their particular representative that they would like to see drawn out. <laughs> and, you know, everybody's got a different one, I guess, but there are certainly some controversial ones uh, that, that people suggest. I mean, you think of somebody like uh, Jim Jordan, but, uh, you know, he beat his opponent last time by 38 and a half points. So drawing his district at, and drawing him out of there seems unlikely, but also on the other side of this, the, the representative of Congress who has the biggest margin of victory every time has been Marsha Fudge, a solidly Democratic district. I mean, she beat her uh, Republican opponent by 60 points. So, you know, as, as, as these new maps are drawn and all these different things are, are broken down and the changes are made, are you concerned? that people will be disappointed if they don't see a dramatic change, if they don't see that eight to seven map or, or something that is uh, more dramatic and they might think would work better. Okay, so I'm not sure who you directed that to. I think that's a hard question, Karen. Um, I, I first just I, wanna I say, was... go ahead. Um, I just first just wanna like, pause for a minute and talk about the power of the people. So the first time the league tried to get legislation passed that would put reform on the ballot was actually in 1978. Um, we actually have been working on this issue for a half a century, finally getting reform to the people. And it's complicated and confusing because we learned that we had to have both the Republican party and the Democratic party 
um, agree to these provisions in order for them to pass on the ballot. But we finally got there. And part of that reason is because after failing many times, maybe you remember the ballot initiative in 2005 or in 2012, the first thing the League and Common Cause did was we created a speakers bureau and people all over the state were trained um, to go speak to other members of the public and explain what gerrymandering is. This is before we had um, uh, books by uh, Dave, um, some of which we can't pronounce. Um, this was before there was a lot of conversation about it. And we just started explaining what gerrymandering was and how it had been hurting the general public. And then we got out our clipboards and we were definitely ready to get our initiative um, onto the ballot. We decided to partner with the General Assembly again to make sure that it passed. But what I'm saying to you is this, um, Ohio's got a long history of gerrymandering. Both Republicans and Democrats have done it because it is a human instinct that if your team is in charge and has power to wanna solidify that and use your advantage to continue advantage into the next decade. But here's the other thing is that the people of Ohio demanded these reforms and now it's time for the people of Ohio to demand that map makers follow the letter and spirit of those reforms that are about transparency and public engagement and um, compactness and, and uh, respecting local jurisdictional lines as much as possible and proportionality, this idea that the seat share should more closely mirror uh, what we see in the general voting population. Um, the minority party does have a little more power. There's some encouragement for bipartisanship. And finally, if none of these things work um, and we get really bad maps, there's an option to take this to the Ohio Supreme Court. So while the federal uh, Supreme Court is, is close to us, at least for now, we can go to the Ohio Supreme Court. So before we get to the other question, Karen, I just wanted to say that, that yes, this is hard. This is not guaranteed that we're gonna get to fair maps. Um, but we have, uh, you know, I, I think one of the nice things about being from the league is we we can take the long view, right? We we fight for things as long as we need to, and I can assure everyone listening right here that the league will not stop until the people of Ohio have fairer maps um, and that maps that really do respond to the people. And one last thing I'll just mention is why this matters is because every voter is hurt with partisan gerrymandering every voter. If you are a Republican in a supermajority state like Ohio um, and you have a Republican lawmaker, you're actually hurt. Why? Because once that lawmaker wins their primary, they know that they're going to win their seat. And once they're in their seat, they know they're going to win again. They don't actually have to listen to you in terms of what you need or what you want. The same is true if you're a Democrat in a Democratic seat. I think it makes sense if you're a Democrat in a, in a Republican seat, you know, those kinds of things. But independents, think about all of us, that so many of us, about a third of us are, are independents, and, and that's how we identify. Many more of us um, switch our votes cross-ballot. And the fact that there's absolutely no responsiveness, um, that there are no swingable seats, means that we have um, both a state house of, of lawmakers as well as our congressional delegation that can remain completely completely immune um, to our needs and our interests and can vote outside of our needs and interests and still get elected again. So every voter is hurt. And so this is my plea to you to make sure that you're participating in the process once again. The 2015 reform, 
passed by almost 72% of the vote across the state. The 2018 for congressional maps, almost 75% in all 88 counties. Ohioans across the state understand the need for fairness and, and want a fair democracy. And it's, it's our turn again to put pressure on these map makers to do a far better job than they've done before. Karen, I guess I'll take Before a stab to, at your. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to take a stab at your question about um, writing um, writing out certain members of Congress. That's certainly not the purpose of the kinds of endeavors that the ACLU or the League or any of our nonpartisan um, collaborators are interested in. It's not to say we don't like this person, so let's get them out of Congress or we think there is a predetermined outcome that we want, so let's make that happen. The whole purpose of these endeavors is to make a map that is responsive to the voters, as Jen was saying. I mean, the purpose is that voters should be choosing their electors and not the other way around. And you know, voters may want Jim Jordan in his district and political geography is real. There are certain areas that are heavily Democratic or Republican, and if you're really paying attention to compactness and contiguity, then you might have a district that looks like it might be packed, but the political geography is such that that's the way the district ends up. Um, in Marsha Fudge's case, there was a lot of talk about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which requires minority representation, and that's something that we looked at. But what people like myself and others in this area are interested in is saying, well, how determinative is political geography is section two? And in what ways are these things used as a shield? And what we found was in many districts, they're using this idea of political geography or this idea that you have to have a certain percentage to for a district to perform for minority voting rights as a shield and not actually doing the actual work. And while Ohio may not be a state that's going to have a lot of solidly Democratic districts, what we were able to show is you can get quite a few competitive districts in Ohio, four to five on top of the solid districts in one way or the other. And that's a scenario that might be even better for democracy because it gives the voters a chance to engage, to participate. It makes the electors more responsive to their voters because they know it's not like in the bag that they're going to get an election. And those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about and that matter in this process, not just targeting one or not at all, in fact, targeting one person in the legislature or another. That's not you know, the outcome that we're interested in. We're interested in an outcome that gives people what they want. Well, before we get to some audience questions, I want to remind people that uh, you're free to, to join our conversation. Uh, if you have any questions for our speakers, you can text them to 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we will try to work them in. But I want to ask uh, one thing about... Jen mentioned the Ohio Supreme Court, and and that's the the court of res last resort, so to speak, uh, the, the the court that maps can be appealed to. But there's something that's very interesting that's been added to the Senate's version of the budget down here at the State House, and uh, it's a provision inserted by Republicans. They dominate 
the Senate as well as the House. And it says that if there is a dispute over the map that goes to the Ohio Supreme Court, the Speaker and the Senate President, both Republicans right now, will be entitled to intervene with attorneys that they would hire using taxpayer funds. Normally, the Attorney General would be the one that would represent the state before the Ohio Supreme Court. But this would allow those two leaders who are now to use taxpayer funds to hire attorneys. And no other state lawmaker, no Democrat, no other state lawmaker could do that. And so I just wonder, with this process just starting, this is kind of a, a challenging way to start the process when it feels like there's potentially partisanship right there. And I just want to throw that out there to you folks. What do you think of that provision? I think the politicians, again, are going to attempt to do whatever they think they can get away with in order to try to manipulate the guardrails that have been put in place that give you such a better chance at a fair process this time than the one that you've had in recent cycles. Um, you look around the country, you see similar efforts like this in a state like Wisconsin, for example, um, where there is a Democratic attorney general. Um, you see efforts like this in Arizona. Um, oftentimes what lawmakers in, in a partisan chamber are worried about is a new attorney general of the other party is elected in the middle of litigation um, and then they step in um, and perhaps pull out of that litigation in a way that um, the, the, the politicians might not want them to. Um, so certainly it's not the way you want to begin this process. But again, I think it's just so important to remember um, in, in 2015 in Ohio and 2018 in Ohio, um, and then in 2018 in so many other states around the country, you saw uh, tremendous victories by advocates of a democracy and independent redistricting. Um, you saw the, you know, victory um, in Florida over felony disenfranchisement, um, redistricting not just in Ohio but also in Michigan, in um, in Colorado, in Utah, and Missouri. Um, and what you see after that is is politicians uh, attempting to use their gerrymandered uh, legislatures uh, to run a backlash. Um, and you saw this in Florida in 2010 after, uh, after citizens overwhelmingly passed fair redistricting amendments to the state constitution. Politicians getting together weeks later and coming up with a process that was uh, just about as sneaky and untransparent as, as, as the one you had. The uh, league had to unwind it in court in Florida. It took five years. Um, and and they won. Um, but you don't ever win this fight permanently. Um, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You've got to have your eyes on it all the time. Um, uh, because as soon as you look away, um, the very human instinct uh, that uh, Jen talked about uh, kicks back in. Um, this has got to be everybody with their their eyes and hands on this process um, in order to protect and defend what you all won in 2015 and 2018. And I'll just jump in and say this. Um, 
this that amendment you're talking about, and there's another one that has to do with really politicizing the Ohio Supreme Court. These are amendments put into the budget and the budget, the purpose of this budget, right, should be dealing with the finances of our state and the economic security of the Ohio residents. And instead, what we have are these last minute legislative power grabs that really weaken one of the building blocks of our representational democracy, which is the separation of power. So these amendments um, really kind of weaken how the executive branch uh, can handle lawsuits potentially. It's hard to know exactly what they do, but that's in part why they have no business being in the budget. The budget, again, should be about how we are paying for schools and how we are supporting families and, and what our, how we're doing economic development. It shouldn't be about um, these arcane and complicated to understand um, you know, uh, amendments that have nothing to do with money and just have to do with power grabs. And so it is our hope that these amendments do come out of the budget and that we just continue the due diligence and thorough review um, of these policies so that we really understand what they do and, and, and we have a chance as the public to uh, be part of that conversation. And, and just as a, a response to that, uh, Senate President Matt Huffman, who uh, was involved, of course, in the Senate budget, uh, says the provision is simply a push for the legislative branch to have a seat at the table as potential challenges to the map make their way through the court system. So it's uh, that that's the rationale there that's been shared by the Republican president of the Senate. So I want to work in some audience questions here because we're getting some really good ones here. Um, this is one that I think uh, has been asked before, but really bears repeating. Has there ever been any weight given to develop a computerized program that would draw lines more equitably? at least as a place to start or as a benchmark to compare to. And Alora, you talked about how when you were challenging the maps in court previously, you did have maps that were drawn that showed that there were fair ways. It, it, were those done with computerized programs or is that a possibility? So there are a number of um, computer programs. David alluded to the simulation process. So a number of academics now have worked on various simulations, which can put in um, the parameters that you would want for a map and then come out with guidelines. I tend to think that those are good kind of guideposts, especially if you want to think about intent, like was this map drawn with the intent of partisan bias? Well, one way to figure that out is to look at, is this map an outlier out of all the possible universe of maps? I'm a little bit more skeptical, and this is me personally, of using a simulation map as your final map. Because one of the other things that we discuss in the map drawing process is community of interest. And quite, and quite frankly, there's no way to com computerize what is a community of interest. A community of interest could be your neighborhood, it could be your school district, it could be a group of people who are living together that have certain um, ethnic or cultural characteristics that are similar. And in order to really kind of fine tune that community of interest part of it, I do think you need a real person with some familiarity about the conditions on the ground who's working on those final lines to make sure that you are drawing a map that not only makes kind of um, computerized sense, but makes a lot of 
on the ground sets, that does not mean that there isn't a function for this computerized process. And in fact, it can be really helpful when analyzing maps and even as a starting point. But I would say for your final map, you want to have, I personally think you'd want to have a person who's kind of looking at those lines and making sure it all makes sense. It's interesting, you'll hear lawmakers say that they don't want to go that road because they were elected to do this process. So they kind of share that opinion, but maybe in a different way that they want to be the ones that draw the maps. So um, again, the map behind me is the congressional map. But again, this process will draw maps for the Ohio House and Senate. And we've had some major changes in the way that the state has gone just in the last 10 years. And so those maps are still equally as important to draw those maps for House and Senate districts because because that's how you develop the policies that uh, we've been talking about and, and certainly the members of uh, the commission that are going to draw these maps. So let me ask you, I mean, the, the, those maps are equally important, but potentially won't get as much attention. Is that a concern here as we're dominated by this thing behind us? We're going to do everything we can to make sure that the public um, are following and participating in both processes. I agree with you that the Ohio legislative maps are super important. And I think we can look at any number of issues that how they get passed out of, you know, the policies that get passed out of the General Assembly and just see that they're out of touch with general everyday Ohioans. We can take an example of um, reproductive choice and how uh, most of us are somewhere in the middle of this continuum of, you know, very few of us say absolutely no abortions ever. Very few of us say absolutely every abortion is okay. Most of us are in this nuance, but what we see passing in the General Assembly are absolute extremes that are out of touch with um, even many um, uh, anti-choice uh, voters. And so I think whether it's gun safety or clean water, what we see is a general assembly that once again is not held accountable um, by the voters because it's rigged to favor one party. There are a few more swingable districts, but really not that many. Um, once again, we see a situation where the real election is the primary for that seat, which really benefits extremes. And that ends up creating a super dysfunctional state house. And, and we know that it's dysfunctional and we're frustrated by that. I, I tend to think on any social issue, we could put a whole bunch of us in the same room and because we don't have political um, gains associated with it, or we're not trying to please donors or whatever, that we could actually come up with co common sense solutions to a lot of our challenges here in Ohio. And so that's our job here at League and at ACLU. I think it's the job of the media to demystify why the state map making process is important and how to participate in it. Yeah, I think Jen's exactly right. So let me um, ask another audience. Really, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry, oh, go ahead. Um, there's a really staggering number here that after the 2018 election, there were 59 million Americans who lived in a state in which one or both chambers of the state legislature was controlled by the party that won fewer votes in that election. And as Jen said, it pushes, it pushes policy um, towards the extreme, even as you know, polls show that on a wide number of issues, even the most controversial issues, that big numbers of Americans show a way forward. Um, where I think this is especially dangerous right now is where you see so many gerrymandered legislatures around the country 
um, going after voting rights um, and and making voting, you know, adding additional restrictions and barriers um, to the processes in 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 Texas and Florida and Georgia, and, um, you know, Arizona, you know, a handful of some of the most gerrymandered states in the country. Um, and this can, um, you know, have gigantic outsized impact for absolutely everybody, right? Um, I mean, the, the the presidential election in Georgia was, um, you know, an 11, 12,000 vote victory for Joe Biden. Um, in Arizona, it was even less than that. Um, so once you start having state legislatures in races that are this close, adding new restrictions, uh, making changes to election administrations and who serves on local boards, uh, you begin to see a situation um, in which that could potentially tip a presidential race. I mean, you had 44,000 votes in three states in, in 2020 that made the difference between a 7.5 million a vote victory in the popular vote for Joe Biden or a 269-269 tie in the Electoral College that would have been decided by um, a gerrymandered U.S. House delegation. So these these changes at the state level and these state legislatures have a big impact not just on policy in your state but the direction of the country I want to turn to another audience question here uh last election ohio was said to have lost its purple state slash swing state status but it sounds like that isn't true if we're just looking at the population's political leanings which we've been talking about here could ohio gain a true swing state status again in the future could it even swing in the other direction and end up like georgia which turned blue when i look back at previous maps i mean ohio hasn't been blue for a long time but really the the wins for democrats in ohio have been in times when there were solid blue areas but the, rest of the state was lighter pink not as bright red so, so you know does ohio have a chance to get back that status of being a purple state a swing state and and can the gerrymander or can the redistricting process without gerrymandering play a role in that i'll i'll start here i'll say two things one i mean ohio is a state that was won in 2008 and 2012 by a Democratic presidential nominee. You currently have a Democratic senator. Um, until 2010, one of the houses of the General Assembly was controlled by the Democrats and not the Republicans. So I think sometimes the most recent history becomes overly determinative and that we're looking at really kind of three election cycles, maybe four of dominance of one political party. And if you go back um, before that, that's not the case. So, and as far as the role that gerrymandering can have or solving this gerrymandering question, that was definitely a question we put to the court. And it has two components. One is about the kind of responsiveness of your, um, of your elected representatives. And what we found was time and time again, when you're in a district in which you don't have to win the minority party's voters or any of them at all, you tend to be less responsive to them. And there were examples of, for example, congressmen not going to bipartisan events and going to um, fundraisers because it didn't matter if they were getting Democrats on board. And you never want a scenario that's set up that way. But there's real kind of then... Um, political participation 
outcomes that happens from that. When elections are predetermined and your elected representatives aren't responsive to your needs, people become disenchanted with the political process. And so we also heard on the other side, voters saying, why should I even bother to participate? The election, we already know who's going to win. My vote doesn't matter. And in in the U.S., we make it really hard to vote. My husband is Swedish. When I try to explain to my Swedish relatives about the kinds of hoops that Americans have to go through just to participate, it makes no sense to them. You Voting is so easy. People are automatically registered in other countries. They can vote not just on one day. I mean, the kinds of barriers that we put up already make political participation hard. And then we're adding this additional barrier by saying, well, it's certain elections, the outcomes are already predetermined. And so I do think if you can get rid of partisan gerrymandering, you make the process more responsive to the will of the voters, what you'll see is political participation going up. And maybe in that scenario, Ohio becomes competitive again. But when people know the elections are competitive, there's very little incentive to engage in a process that's that's already very difficult for them. Another audience question here. If reforms require maps reflect representational voting over the past 10 years, doesn't that mean maps must be significantly improved? Can four-year maps completely ignore reforms? And that that discussion about the four-year map versus the 10-year map, uh, talk a little bit about that, whoever wants to join in on that one. I can start and then I encourage Alora and others. Here's the one thing, the four-year map for the congressional actually has more requirements to it. So even though it would be a four-year map rather than a 10, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be, um, th there are still things that we, th there's still ways to deal with that. So if it's very gerrymandered and it's not meeting those additional requirements, then I think that map makers should expect a case before the Ohio Supreme Court quite quickly. Um, one of the nice things about bringing things to the courts is courts are, um, judges are supposed to be um, nonpartisan. They judge, they, they are not, um, they don't make the law, they judge the law. And I think um, it, what I've found when we go to the courts of these kinds of things is that there's a lot of openness um, among judges to really think about the impacts and, 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 the, and, and the concerns that we have about the map. So I, I would not say that um, we're definitely gonna get four-year maps. I hope we get 10-year maps in part because it's a lot of effort for all of us to then have to repeat four years from now. Um, but again, I just wanna say, I think more than anything, it wasn't that the Ohio Republican Party really wanted to work with the league and the Democratic Party to put amendments on the ballot in 2015 and 2018. They were forced, the public wanted it. And so once again, that's where we play a part. And I, I'm sorry to be that broken record, but that's our job is to make sure folks are participating as voters and as advocates. And so I do encourage anyone who's interested to volunteer, to donate, to become a league member, to uh, have a speaker come to your group, to participate in our map making competition in the fall, um, to go to fairdistrictsohio.org and you can find ways to get involved. And just to remind you, we are not at all concerned about parties and candidates. We're concerned about voters and making sure that representation works for all Ohioans. 
Well, let me uh, ask another audience question here. During the last redistricting effort, the map was approved by prominent black leaders to try to preserve the presence of minority representation, even if it meant 12 to four elections for a decade. How do good government advocates navigate the tension between preservation of political power, possibly undermining the possibility of future of pursuing more balance in future elected officials? So that's I think that there's a real question here on, on how do you how do you move through that process? So just to make sure I understand the question, the question is about minority voting rights representation. Yeah, okay. So this is something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about. So I'm just gonna jump in. I think there is a fallacy that good government and minority representation are at odds with one another. And that fallacy we often see in many states, Ohio is one of them. So taking, for example, what was formerly Marsha Fudge's district, we heard that her district was drawn in such a way to comply with the Voting Rights Act. And so that was something that we were very concerned about because we're very concerned at the ACLU, at the League of Women Voters, at APRI, which was another plaintiff in the case with minority voting rights. And we don't wanna dismantle gains that have been made by uh, minorities in any district. And so we took those concerns very seriously. But what we found was that minority voting rights was being used as a shield. And in fact, what the map makers didn't do is the kind of work that you need to do to ensure minority voting rights, which is actually conducting an analysis of the voting patterns of minority voters within districts to see at what level do districts need to perform. They, they just kind of said, well, we think it needs to be 53%, which is not what any of the case law says. And what we did was actually hire someone who specializes in section two analysis to do an analysis of the Cleveland area and say, at what level does this district need to be drawn so that it is meeting section two and it is meeting the needs of the um, community members there? And we didn't even just do that for Cleveland. We said, well, where are the other places where you see significant numbers in this, in Ohio's case of African-Americans? And so we looked at the numbers in Columbus. We looked at numbers in Cincinnati. And what we found was we were able to draw a map that was more competitive on a partisan basis and that was fairer to Ohio voters and had the same level of African-Americans in Columbus and more African-Americans in Cincinnati in a district than there is in the current map. And that's because we actually spent the time to kind of do the analysis. And if you look at Cincinnati, I mean, Cincinnati is a, is a democratic state um, and a state, I'm sorry, not state, a democratic city that's represented by two Republicans, partly because the city's cut in half. And actually cutting the city in half you are weakening minority rights within the city and you're making it worse for Democrats than you would if you kept the city whole. So being very intentional about it and looking at those processes, we were able to disprove this myth that minority voting rights and partisan fairness are at opposite ends of the spectrum and you get one or the other. So I just want to be explicitly clear. What we found in this research is that Marsha Fudge's district did not need to extend into Summit County. 
And I think we can argue that um, African-Americans would have more power if their votes weren't so diluted. And again, that the map was designed with predetermined outcomes. Well, I want to get David in uh, with a couple of questions that I've gotten all on the same kind of topic, just phrased differently. Several people are asking how they can get involved to hold the map makers accountable to get to a map that's a little bit closer to a, a, a nine six or, or whatever. And, and like I said, you literally wrote the book on it. So what would you suggest to people who are trying to preserve a process that they think uh, that they're very concerned about? It's a great question. I mean, these these processes, these these maps and these district lines are really the building blocks of our democracy. And when they get twisted by partisans, uh, it twists the very nature um, of, of outcomes and, and policy and elections. What I want to say is that when citizens get together, we can still make big change. What Jen said earlier, I think is really important. Republicans and Democrats in Ohio did not want to compromise on this. They had to be forced to the table because all of you stood up and put political pressure on them to do so. You said that it was important. Gerrymandering used to be this process that put people to sleep, right? It reminded you of civics class. The word even sounds boring. Um, and what politicians do is they count on that um, in order to make people think that this is dull, that it's math, it's maps, and then they push it into their bunkers and their back rooms and they draw the lines that they want to have. We need to force that process back into the open. When there are public hearings on this, you should take part and show up and talk about what a community of interest is. Um, this is the same thing that we saw in Virginia where the politicians there did not want to give up control of this process. The people showed up. They showed up at lobby days that you all have, have done the same thing in Columbus. They made clear that they were watching, that this process mattered. What the 2018 and other elections have, have, have shown on these uh, democracy initiatives is that they unite Democrats, Republicans, and independents who still believe very deeply in, in notions of fairness, in, in notions of responsive elections, majority rule. Your neighbors care about this, talk about it, show up. This fight is our fight. And finally, as we're coming toward the end of the show here, I want to throw a question to all of you. Um, what do what guarantees do we have that these maps are going to be better? How do we define better? And what happens if they aren't better? So just a, a final thought there on that. And uh, let's start with, let's start, Jim. All options are on the table. Again, so I come from an organization that's been fighting for fair maps for the people for a half century. And so what I'll just say is this, please join our efforts, fairdistrictsohio.org. And we're going to do everything we can. You don't have to be an expert. We will help you write emails and make phone calls to map makers. We will, um, we're developing a curriculum for K through 12 schools. There's so many things going on. We just need your support. And uh, we will not give up until we end this terrible tradition of partisan gerrymandering that's hurting every Ohioan. David, how do we define better? What happens if these maps aren't better? 
I think I think you define better by maps that are responsive to voters, that maps that have the ability to swing uh, when one party is in favor or when the other party is in favor. When a map no longer has any swing, um, a democracy loses its rhythm, right? Um, and so that is what I would be looking for, really. Um, are, um, you had a case this last decade in which every district stayed exactly the same. Ohio did not stay the same over the course of that decade. It won't stay the course, it, it, it won't stay the, uh, the same over the course of the next decade. You want a map that mirrors more closely the political feelings and realities and wishes of the people. Laura, your final thoughts on how do you define better and what happens if these maps aren't better? All I can do is echo what Jen and David said. Um, a better map is a map that is responsive to the voters. We like to say that voters pick their electors and not the other way around. And so getting Ohio a better map is a map in which the voters actually get to pick who they send to the state house, who they send to Washington. As far as the process, you have to stay engaged if you wanna get that better map. I like to think of litigators, we are like the last resort. You bring me in when all other options have been exhausted. I hope you don't have to see me in Ohio. I really hope that you guys are able to put pressure on this political process to get a map that shows the will of the voters. Well, I'm going to jump in here. Karen Kassler of the Ohio Public Radio Statehouse News Bureau, thank you so much for moderating our conversation. And uh, you've been listening to a panel conversation about redistricting featuring uh, Laura Thomas-Lundberg. She's senior staff attorney with the Voting Rights Project at the ACLU. Jen Miller, executive director of the League of Women Voters of Ohio. And Dave Daly, author of Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Our forum today was presented in collaboration with the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland. Thanks to the member sponsors and donors and others who support the City Club's mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. This was exactly what that was today. So again, thank you to Karen Kassler for moderating. I'm Dan Malthrop. Our forum is now adjourned.